you all just, I don't know if it was announced, but I, I'll be away the next two weeks, leaving tonight at 9.15 uh, to Cape Town via London with five companions, four of whom terrify me. Uh, actually, five. <laughs> but, um, so I'll be away for two weeks doing, uh, we'll be hopefully a bit of a, a holiday, but also preaching and teaching down there a bit. And it was, uh, uh, I was a bit late. We had a, a lot of uh, new faces in in Surrey. Actually, a, a guy on the soccer team I coach at Langley Christian, him and uh, one other guy, they had to do some cookie baking with my daughter for a charity. And they came over the other night after Bible study. And I said to them, they should come to church. And uh, so they said they would. But then I said, you know what? People always say they will, but they don't. So this guy wakes up, he went to bed at 2 a.m. last night, he wakes up, it's just before 9, and you know what words tormented him as he thought, should I go to church, was Mark said, people always say they'll come, but they never do. So he came to church, and it was uh, kind of nice to just see how, you know, warning people that they will act like liars and hypocrites gets them to church, Um, and it did. And uh, we had lots of other new faces. It was, it was really quite exciting. And then uh, here as well. So uh, just so you know, it's one of the fun things about being a pastor is you just never know who shows up. Um, and we went through John chapter 6. And it was, uh, I trust, read from verse 1 to 21 earlier. So we're going to be reading from verse 22 to verse 40. I know it's a big chunk, but we did get through it earlier. John chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you you have seen me and yet do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, let us ask for God to bless his word read and preached. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. What glorious things of you are spoken, and indeed your Son, and by extension, therefore, us, for we are those who believe on him whom you have sent unto eternal life. And so we pray that we will listen now as though that were true. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, if you were to take a contemporary teenage boy and take a first century teenage boy and put them in a room and talk to them about food, it would be quite a remarkable conversation asking them various questions, uh, noting the differences in their answers. Uh, Where does food come from? A 13-year-old child today could say, with some justification, it comes from the store. My mom or my dad goes to the store, and voila, they come back, and there's grocery bags, and there's packages in the grocery bags, and then there's packages in those packages in the grocery bags. It's like Christmas, and uh, you get the food. Whereas the person from the first century would say, well... uh, my mom or my dad or I go out into the field and we do this and we do that or we go here fishing and we get fish and we get bread. Uh, You could ask them, uh, what is your staple diet? What is the staple diet of an average 13-year-old boy today? A staple diet of an average 13-year-old boy today is the following. There's nothing to eat in this house. And incredulous looks emerge from mom and dad. What do you mean there's nothing to eat in the house? If you were to take the first century boy and put him in the house and say, look at all this, he'd pass out from all there is to eat in the house. Today, there's nothing to eat in the house. There's nothing to eat that I want to eat. What do you want for lunch? I don't know. And so on and so forth. You could ask them, do you want a snack? The first century boy, what is a snack? Boy, today, what is a snack? And you could have a thousand different answers, right? Because there is really no limit to what could be a snack, whether healthy or largely, as is the case, unhealthy. Uh, What am I trying to say? Well, if you were to go back into the first century, you would have a radically different view of food and everything associated with it than most do today. And your idea of food would basically be contained in the idea of a staple diet of bread and fish, and then sometimes other uh, things that you would eat. Remember, there were certain dietary laws that were very strict for Jewish people, but bread was a staple, like uh, mealy pop in South Africa, or rice, or yams, or, or potatoes in certain countries, where that is basically your staple diet, and then you can add whatever you can find to that. But there are staple diets. To have bread in the first century was to have life. That's the point. No bread, 
no life. No bread, famine in this particular area. Bread symbolized life. Bread symbolized for an Old Testament Jew, God's blessing and provision. And that brings us to another point about what you've just read. This is, in many respects, a reenactment of the Exodus and all of the events associated with it. That is clear. And I just point out several of the commonalities. God leads the Israelites through the wilderness, and there are many that follow God, who a pillar of fire and a cloud uh, in the day. Uh, And here in verses 1 and 2, and see verse 2, a large crowd was following Jesus. You also notice that in the Exodus, Moses goes to the mountain to meet with God. And here in chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus goes up to a mountain. And also at the end, in verse 15 of this uh, section, he withdraws again to a mountain by himself. Just like Moses did, so did Jesus. Now, God multiplied signs and wonders in Exodus. Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 2, performs signs. You look at verse 26, verse 30, there's an emphasis on signs and wonders. What else did God do associated with the Exodus? Well, He instituted the Passover. And lo and behold, verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. How many more points? Well, what else did God do? He gave manna from heaven. In Exodus chapter 16, He gave manna from heaven. What does Jesus do in chapter 6, verse 5, or verse 14? He gives them bread to eat. Also, what happened with the Israelites when they collected their manna from heaven? They picked up everything so that nothing was wasted and gathered double on the Friday so that they could rest on the Sabbath. And you notice that here, verse 12, they pick up so that nothing is wasted. God also promised to raise up a prophet like Moses in uh, chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. And here there's an emphasis on Jesus being that prophet. You can see that in verse 14, but also 16 uh, and onwards and the rest of the whole discourse of the bread of life. And you'll notice that there's another interesting aspect. After God blesses the Israelites, redeems the Israelites, takes care of the Israelites, provides for the Israelites, what do the Israelites do in response? Bless God and praise God and sing praise God from whom all blessings flow and have a night of prayer? No, they murmur against God. What happens in John 6 is quite remarkable. For all of the blessings that they receive from Jesus Christ, They murmur. You could see that in verse 41, and you can see it in verse 43. And as it continues, there is a grumbling in the wilderness. So, what is going on here? Jesus is, in a sense, reenacting the whole Exodus event. He is the prophet that Moses spoke of, and he is actually the manna that God gives that doesn't perish, but actually leads to eternal life. So that's the context of the miracle. Bread equals life, and it is do or die. But also, 
This has an Old Testament context. So what happens in chapter 6 in this miracle? Well, you will know the Passover was uh, a bit of a religious political frenzy. There was a lot of nationalistic zeal. It was their identity was around Passover, how God protected them, redeemed them, and brought them out and formed them into a nation. So the 4th of July would have this sort of, as it probably not as strong as it used to be, but it was uh, a time of intense nationalistic zeal for Americans, flags everywhere and so on. Here they're gathering and we read that the feeding of the 5,000 takes place, but these are almost certainly in reference to heads of households. So it could be 20 or 30,000 people who are present. And notice it's interesting because uh, Philip raises the question after Jesus asks him a question, but he knew what he was doing. He was testing him. Philip answers, 200 days worth of labor would not get enough bread to give them even a little. Take a salary for 200 days, and when you have twenty to 30,000 people, you are not going to even scratch the surface. It gets actually more humorous in one respect because uh, Andrew, in verse 8, Simon Peter's brother said to him, Ah, there's a boy here. And he's got five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? There's the staple diet. What is a boy with five loaves and two fish going to do for twenty to 30,000 people? I'll tell you what it would do in many contexts. If there is hunger and almost starvation, it would lead to a certain death. You've seen how harrowing those uh, videos and uh, pictures are where aid organizations come into places like Somalia and other places uh, around the world where they dump off bags of rice or whatever it may be and people go tearing in and there's even shootings that happen and people are running away and gathering what they can and the truck just drives off because it's done its job. What are five loaves going to do for 20,000 people? except cause perhaps harm. And if you look at it from that perspective, the disciples are asking a legitimate question. What will this do? The problem is the disciples should not be looking at merely from the perspective of man. And a lot of the Christian life is really trying not to always understand situations in our life that may be difficult or perplexing from our vantage point, And that is a common sin of many Christians. We are always thinking about how will this possibly resolve itself? How am I going to get out of this? How will my spouse or my children or whoever deal with this? It's impossible. And it began with the disciples. It continues with the disciples. It continues here. It continues in my heart, in your heart. How will this resolve itself? But Jesus resolves it. And we are told that they had as much as they wanted at the end of verse 11. And when they had eaten their fill. So just so you're clear, nobody left hungry. They gathered up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Now how do the thousands respond to this? And Again, from one perspective, it sounds like they are responding just as they should. And it's a little bit depressing, to be honest, because I think most of us today, if we're in the situation where Jesus was, we would say, look at this, is wonderful. 
Look at all the people. Look what they say in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, Deuteronomy 18, that Moses speaks of. This is the prophet who is to come into the world. There he is. In fact, not only that, they want to make him king by force. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, you will be our king, is a uh, transliteration of really what's going on here. You're going to be our king. Now you can emphasize certain words in that sentence. You can emphasize you, Jesus is king, or you can emphasize are. And when you emphasize the word are, it changes everything. You will be our king. You who are the prophet, you who have met our needs, you will be our king on our terms. So what does Jesus do? He withdraws again to the mountain by Himself. Why doesn't He just say, this is the purpose I came into the world, to save sinners. Everybody's putting their faith in Me. Everybody's trusting Me. They're calling Me prophets. They're calling Me king. What were they actually missing? And Jesus knew that they were missing. That He would have to be not just a prophet, not just a king, but He would have to be a priest who would lay down His life. And they weren't interested in that type of king. They weren't interested in that type of prophet. They were interested in a king and a prophet on their terms. So Jesus withdraws. And then you have what's interesting, and I brought this up last week, is the account of Jesus walking on the water. He leaves, but then he comes back to his disciples, and he's walking on water. They're in some trouble It's dark, it's windy, they're scared, and there they see the Lord walking on water. Why does He do this? And as you read Job chapter 9, verse 8, you read that God is the one who tramples on the waves. And then you read verse 11, and what happens? God means to pass by Job so that Job does not actually understand Him or see Him. He passes me by. Jesus now is the revelation of God. Instead of passing them by, as He was intending to do in Mark's Gospel, we are told He reveals Himself to them. It is I. Why is He doing that? Because everything that's happening, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the trampling on the waves, everything He's doing is a revelation of who He is. It's not merely what is He doing, But who is the person that is doing these things? And this person is none other than the eternal Son of God. So then the bread of life discourse sort of takes shape. And uh, what's remarkable about this is that there's a bit of hide and seek going on. Jesus withdraws to a mountain, comes back, the disciples are scared, then they leave, then all of the other people who had been fed want to find Him. After all, they had tried to make him their king. They want more of what he is able to offer them. And you see that come out when they find him in verse 25. And Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs and interpreted them as you should have. Let me say that again. It's, it's I think, the meaning of what is being said here. You aren't looking for me because you have understood that in these signs I am 
the voice of God, the prophet of God, the one who comes on God's terms. But you are seeking Me because you ate your fill of the loaves. You had your temporary necessities met by Me. And you like that more than you care about who I am. Now you see, this is the soul and substance of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that didn't begin in America in the 20th century. It may have flourished there with their stadiums and so forth, and it has happened in places like South Korea where there are limousines for pastors. I don't wish to be too hard on America. It happens all over the world. You find churches in Africa, health, wealth, and prosperity, Asia. Why do you find them everywhere? Because the human heart by nature is health, wealth, and prosperity oriented and wants to tie that to God. And if they can say God is blessing me and that I will get something from God, you will find that it will be very easy to pack out stadiums as preachers inevitably do. That doesn't mean that if you have a small church that you're necessarily being faithful. You just might be a rubbish preacher. I've heard some people say, well, you know, it's because I'm faithful, it's so tiny. It may be the case, may not be. But it's not hard to have people sit and hear what they want to hear. And Jesus rebukes them for that. And then He reminds them in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. Don't work for something in your life and it was a good thing, ultimately, food. But don't work for that. Don't make your life about having your temporal needs met. Don't focus on things that will perish. I hope you will indulge me. I mean, it, the World Cup comes only every four years. and I don't like reading commentaries anymore. Uh, so boring, half of them. And... Uh, so, uh, most of you will know of Ronaldo, the Portuguese player, one of the greatest soccer players ever. There's a debate whether he is the greatest of all time. It's not really important for my purposes. He is one of the greatest of all time. That is undisputed. An incredible career. And what's been remarkable at this World Cup and what was in plain evidence before this is that he uh, is not the player he used to be. And it's hard, not just for his fans, but it's hard for him because he's not starting games. He's led Portugal to the World Cup. He's carried them on his back. He's, he's someone who has more Instagram followers, I think, than almost anyone else in the world. He's, he's more famous than really anyone in the world besides maybe one other soccer player. And there he is sitting on the bench, distressed, perplexed, upset. And it really drove home to me, you know, he's had a long career but it's done now, basically. It's over. His life is over in one sense. If his life was merely superstar success goals, he will have to wake up to the frightening reality in a year or two or 15 or 20 or whenever that may be that there is more to life than any amount of success that will ultimately perish in this world. And we are no different with our own identity crises, whether it is being the best soccer player in the world or whatever it may be. And Jesus is saying, all of that stuff's going to perish. 
It is going to perish. Don't work for that, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Work for that which will last. Now, they ask a very good question. What, verse 28, must we do to be doing the works of God? If we're to work for the food that lasts, what works are we to do? And Jesus answers marvelously, in actual fact, in a certain sense, you cannot do any works for this eternal life. In fact, the work that you must do is to believe And the principal act of saving faith is to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. What must we do? You must do nothing except receive. You must believe that Jesus has come and done what you are not able to do. And this is remarkable. The power of faith in Christ. I read a delightful quote from Thomas Boston this week. 18th century Scotsman. Uh, pastor, theologian, and he says this, no sin of yours will ruin you if you believe. No sin will ruin you if you believe. But nothing will save you if you don't. No sin will ruin you if you believe, but nothing good or no great works that you do will save you if you don't believe. The great work that God requires is that you receive instead of give. That you believe in Jesus Christ. And so, notice their response. They said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, are you a little bit stumped by why they would say this? It's almost as though they're saying, Well... You've got off to a good start. You fed the 5,000 households. That's good. If my math is correct, Moses for many years fed 2 million Israelites. Moses did a lot more than you've done. It's a good start. And you know, the signs are encouraging right now with your ministry, Rabbi. But what else are you going to do? You've walked on water, turned water into wine, healed a lame person for 38 years, you've fed thousands of people, but what else are you going to do? That's really the problem with humanity. Once your eyes are fixated on something like miracles rather than the person, or whether your eyes are fixated on making money rather than being satisfied in God, you're always going to be asking, what else? What more? And so what could Jesus have done? A thousand more miracles in their sight and they would have still come back to Him. And what else are you going to do? If you don't believe, then nothing else will make any sense. And so notice how Jesus responds to them. He says, truly, in verse 32, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. You're comparing me to Moses? It was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And what He did back then, He is doing before your very eyes right now. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You could almost say, if you were to write an interpretive 
word in there or two. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives His life to the world. That's the bread of heaven. And they say, give us this bread always. And He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen Me and yet you do not believe. Now it's a little bit distressing, isn't it? He's doing all of these things and even sometimes they're saying, yes, prophet, yes, rabbi, yes, you are the king. And Jesus is still not accepting their testimony. That's why, and we, we have to be careful, you should never not believe somebody who is professing to be a Christian because I would rather believe them and be proved wrong later than to not believe them at all and in fact get it wrong. But it does mean that there will be proof in the pudding. So many people got excited about Kanye. He's a Christian, writes a great album. I still listen to some of those songs. I says, well, that's great. But is he going to be sitting down on the Lord's Day worshiping God faithfully week in, week out? Or does he get a, a pass because he's Kanye? Or Jordan Peterson who says a few things on a podcast and everyone loses their mind. He's a Christian. He says, great. He's, I listened to his podcast. I listened to him and Roger Scruton this week. It was an hour and a half podcast at Cambridge University. Listen to it. I have no idea what they're talking about half the time. It's like a library got a, a bomb went off in it and all these words came out. I'm not an idiot, but I was this week. But I don't really care what Jordan Peterson says on a podcast about this sort of mystical experience of Jesus. Will he sit in a church under authority and be a faithful church member and serve the body and love the body and be a Christian? Really, that's what Christianity is. You don't get a pass because you're a world-renowned superstar soccer player, artist, philosopher, or whatever it may be. But where's Christ's confidence? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Yes, there are some who are coming to me that aren't really coming to me because they're coming on their terms, but all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And notice verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. Anyone who is meant to come to Christ will come to Christ. And they will come in the most remarkable ways, sometimes surprising ways. I had a week. Oh, I could write a book on my week. And when I go crazy, I really go crazy, by the way. It's good I'm leaving tonight at 9.15 for your good and mine. But, you know, I thought, I'm going to be a hero and bring down suitcases of stuff for people and Christmas will be great. We'll be giving stuff to people. So I start ordering this, asking for donations here. And I asked Chester Chummy, our missionary, what would he like? His daughter's just graduated. She wanted this little camera thing, order it off Amazon. It says, oh, coming by Saturday night by 10 o'clock. And I says, ah, oh, this is perfect ordered a few books for myself, you know. Uh, and I'm sitting in my office, minding my own business, enjoying life. And Barb opens the door, but as soon as she opens the door, the Amazon guy there is with the boxes. Ah, wonderful. Just on time. 
And she says, oh. And she grabs a box. She comes into the office. She's like, look at all these. And she doesn't know what I get up to sometimes in my office when I'm ordering off Amazon books that I need. But she brings them in. I says, oh, good. And so I look. I open the box. There's the books. Ah, yes. Oh, there's something here. Did you order this part? Yes, that's yours. And then I go onto the computer because the gift for Chester's daughter didn't actually arrive. But then I look at my computer. to Maybe it's coming a bit later. But it says, no, delivered to resident. Oh, that's not true. I have the boxes here. I opened them. It wasn't delivered to resident. So I phone Amazon. Amazon, very nice, trying to help me. They say, well, maybe he's going to deliver it a bit later. Sometimes these things happen. If it's left in his van at the end of the night, he'll see that it was failed to deliver. He'll bring it to you, even though it says it's been delivered to you. And he's actually very close in your neighborhood. What do I do? I jumped in my car. And I chase the Amazon driver down. I'm driving here, there, I'm going around, I'm going into cul-de-sacs. I'm going to find this guy. Because I am not going to South Africa without this gift for Chester's daughter. And I found him. I ended up in the back of an Amazon van last night. And he says, it's not here. And I'm like, oh, it's here. And he was so nice. And I go you delivered it and my wife opened the door. He says, yes, yes, I know. I remember that. So your wife opened the door. I remember. I said, so exactly. You know I'm not making this up. Why would I come looking for you for something that was delivered to me? It makes no sense. He says, yeah, but it shows on here. So we're taking pictures of each other's phone because it's been delivered. I go home. I'm sitting there. I'm so depressed. I says, Barb, you said you brought the boxes to me, right? She says, yeah. She says, I said, how many? I said, there, there, were, there were three boxes, right? She said, no, that, well, there were four packages. I said, I only opened three boxes. She goes, oh, there's another package. It's like what a book comes in. What? Where is it? She goes into the office, brings out this little soft package. You wouldn't put a camera in this, but they did. And guess what? I open it and it's there. Now, I didn't know whether I was relieved, humiliated, convicted. I don't know what emotion and I thought about that package. Is like the Father saying, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and I will lose none that you have given me. But there are some packages and some Christians that cause you a great deal of strife in their conversion. Some it's nice. They sit down, they hear a sermon, they repent, they believe. It's great. Oh, isn't that wonderful? And they actually stay faithful. Then there's some who you want to kill them. They want to kill you. They cause you stress. They come to church. Then they stop coming for months. They come back and you're like, is everything okay? They're like, oh yeah, I just had some things. And then they go back again. Then you find them staggering around on the road and then they come back to church and you just go, what is going on? But somehow, over time, there they are. Because... God's hand is upon them. And if God has given that person to the Lord, He will in no wise cast them out. That means He will keep them and protect them and take very good care of them. I'm sending 12 cases through tonight. And I'm telling you, that camera is right in my precious little bag. It is not leaving me. Now, something may happen. I may be eating my words, but I am going to get that camera. To Chloe. And God the Father will get every single child of God to His Son. Now there's... I'm out of time, but I have three points of application. I'm going to give you one. How's that for a deal? Some of you may have been concerned by my sermon title. Marina Hawkin was, that's for sure. 
Imagine flying to Mexico and you look at the bulletin and it says, don't go to Mexico. So she's on to me. What, is, what do you mean by your title? Then I hear Bart. He just decided to go to Mexico. He hasn't got back to me. He's probably having a good time. <laughs> Who reads a church bulletin in Mexico? If Bart writes to me about the title, I'll be like, okay, slow day at Mexico, right? Don't go to Mexico. Why would I say don't go to Mexico? Well, I was reading an article this week. Uh, I was put onto it by a Yale uh, um, professor of medicine, Nicholas Christakis, and uh, he wrote this book, Apollo's Arrow, that I'm reading and slowly reading. Uh, and uh, he links to this article, and the article highlights that you know Mexico City has been built on top of the the old Aztec Empire, and uh, remember the Spanish conquistadors came and uh, they basically took over, uh, and there's a whole bunch of different accounts on you know what really happened. The conquistadors say they came and they saw human sacrifice en masse, and it was awful, and they had to you know put to end this sort of savage civilization, but then you have the response by certain archaeologists, sociologists, and so on, where they say, well, hang on now, the conquistadors are are overstating the matter. It wasn't that bad. It was a justification and so on. Now, this person, I assure you, is not a conservative. He's, he's in fact, seems like quite a uh, left-sided uh, thinker in many respects. But he links this article. And the article talks about a recent findings, archaeological discoveries in Mexico City underground that they've been able to find out some of the things that actually did take place before the conquistadors got there and when they got there. And it was, to put it very bluntly and clearly, it was human sacrifice on a mass scale. So there would be a priest, and the priest would take somebody living, usually someone who had been enslaved, but somebody living, it could be even a child, but usually someone who's between 20 and 35, and would slice open with a very sophisticated, sharp instrument their torso and remove their heart. Now that was done to feed the gods. Then they would take the skull of that person and they would drill a hole, uh, however they did that drilling, I don't know, but they would take a hole in one side, a hole in another, and there would be a long pole and they would put skull beside skull beside skull beside skull. And they found that this was not something that was just a mere occasion, but there are roughly, as far as they can see in this one area, 130,000 skulls that were sacrificed now here's from the article. Human sacrifice occupied a particularly important place in Mesoamerica. Many of the region's cultures, including the Maya and the Mexica, believed that human sacrifice nourished the gods. You've got to feed the gods. Without it, the sun would cease to rise and the world would end. If you don't feed the gods, they get angry and we're done for. And sacrificial victims earned a special honored place in the afterlife. We're going to slice your torso open right now, remove your heart, and then drill holes into your skull, but you're going to go to a better place. All pre-modern societies, this is not just here, but all pre-modern societies make some kind of offering to the gods. And in many societies, if not all, the most valuable sacrifice is what? Human life. Moloch, the Maya, Mexica people, today with abortion and maid and other things in our culture where 
Our religion is so perverted and screwed up, we are making offerings to the God of secularism and humanism and atheism. And this is humanity. This is humanity apart from the grace of God. Whether in Africa, whether in China, whether in Canada, whether in Mexico, apart from the grace of God, this is humanity. We will feed the gods. We will do something for our gods. It is up to us to make sacrifices for God. And what is God saying here? He is saying that it is God who is to feed us. It is God who sends His Son, who willingly comes, and He alone, the Son of God, is the sacrifice and the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God. He is the One who will bring life. Whereas everyone else, left to themselves, will bring death upon death upon death. Jesus comes to bring life at the cost of His own. And He feeds us. We do not feed Him. Christianity takes world religion. Christianity takes everything that human beings thinks is a good idea and turns it on its head and says, no, you cannot feed God. You cannot please God. You cannot do anything for God. What has man ever done that God should repay him? And in fact says, no, God must feed you. God must be the one who lays down his life for you. And God is the one who must give you eternal life or no one else will or can. I have come that they may have life abundantly. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank You for Your Word and ask that we will remember that we, if we do nothing else in this life, we must believe on Him whom You have sent, the bread of heaven, the bread that gives us eternal life, and the bread that satisfies us so that we do not need to work, but receive. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.